Dust on the Bible Cocaine on the DVD I spent the summer in a brickyard, baby Spent the winter not calling me Now the maid is improvising Now she's popping down the dust on the piano key When I spring for the phone to leave you alone If you don't show me If you don't show me If you don't show me how alone to be Lost my soul on the second floor of a gentleman's hall in Tijuana That's the kind of thing that goes on in those places so I'm trying not And my poncho So I give him your address and leave How am I supposed to let you go If I don't know If I don't know If I don't know if my soul has been received I've been old for so long now I'd like to be a Show's lost on the rocks at Tacoma And my home is but the ponderosa trees I found the flesh isn't worth the trouble If the spirit is not set free The maid is alone, Mrs. Jared at home Weeping as she's sweeping the keys How's a wound gonna heal?
Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 159 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. We started off the show with the track, If You Don't Show Me, from the band State Champion, off their great album from 2018, Send Flowers. State Champion is fronted by singer and songwriter Ryan Davis, who's also a member of the scuzzy post-punk group Tropical Trash, and he's also a key figure behind Sophomore Lounge, a label that has been active for beyond a decade now and has issued over 100 releases from artists that cover a broad spectrum of homespun DIY sounds. On this installment, we'll be speaking with Ryan Davis about his work running Sophomore Lounge, about his involvement in the Cropped Out Music Festival in Louisville, and about his own music and songwriting pursuits. And throughout the show, you'll also hear a bunch of music from the Sophomore Lounge catalog, focusing largely on the newer releases that they have put out in recent years, along with some forthcoming releases too. Before we get to all that, we'll start off by playing a few more selections, starting with this track from Tropical Trash called Early Wish. Thank you. 
Well, Sophomore Lounge has been active for about, I guess, 13 years now. So could you take us back to the early stages of the label and, and why you started up? Was it sort of initially an outlet for you and your friends who were, were making music in the Louisville area? Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, to some extent, that's still what it is. It, it wasn't just Louisville at the time when it started. I was living in Chicago. Let's see, it would have been 2000, like May of 2007, I think I put out the first release that we called Sophomore Lounge, which was just like the first batch of state champion, state champion moves, basically. Um, so that would have been like right after I graduated college, I was living in Chicago, I went to SAIC there, and um, I had just gotten a job that summer. Like I was interning at Drag City when I was in college, and then that, that turned into a job as soon as I graduated. So that was like around the time that I started the label, and then it just ended up being kind of perfect timing to the more I learned about the inner workings of the label, like the more labels worked in ways that I never realized that they did. And I was kind of cutting my teeth and then like applying that in my own way to my own terms of bands and that sort of thing. But it, it definitely started out of necessity, just being involved in this kind of like rich Chicago underground of basement shows and house parties and all that. And more and more bands were starting and kind of had this kinship with one another, but you know, none of them were signed or even really touring all that much at the time it was more just like people kind of knowing each other with your friends and trading around CDRs and that sort of thing and just kind of in you know, the cassette tapes and whatever and just sort of like started writing sophomore lounge on stuff for the first five or six and that eventually by I think the teens turned into a vinyl and then it just kept going from there. Sure yeah yeah well you, you mentioned Drag City and, and I was going to ask you about that because I'd read this other Q&A that you did a few years ago where you stated that you you considered Sophomore Lounge essentially a quote-unquote art label. And, and when you, you went on to mention that it was labels like, uh, say, Dreg City or Thrill Jockey, both pretty you know foundational labels there in the Chicago area, yeah. but that they really informed your idea of what you wanted to do uh, with Sophomore Lounge. So I kind of have a twofold question with that, is that, um, you know, first in your mind, what makes what you do a an art label i think what how do you how do you uh how would you describe that and i guess in the second side of that is um do you find that when you release things that may break out of a certain stylistic mold than previous things that you've done i mean is it do you find that's challenging to like convince people to check that out or at this stage yeah. people who just follow the label naturally follow it so uh yeah i think yes and no i mean the art label thing is interesting. I don't, I don't actually remember ever saying that. I'm sure I did, but I don't, that sounds like pretentious of me to call it an art label. I mean, I guess <laughs> it's no more an art label than a lot of other record labels that I sort of find to be peers or look up to and there's something. I didn't, I didn't mean to come off like as if my releases are so precious as to call it that, but I think, <laughs> yeah, maybe just, I do often think about releases as like, you know, I do pay a lot of attention to the object, you know, I mean, that you have enough of the stuff I've sent you to have seen that like we often screen print stuff or hand cut stuff or stamp stuff or like I think that that element of it is really is fun for me I think it just makes it like as a listener myself I think it always makes the listening experience a little richer when you're able to kind of see that that uh there was some some blood sweat and tears put into like the packaging and everything like that but beyond that I mean yeah, I mean, I don't know about the art label thing, but the Drag City, yeah, that was obviously a big influence to me, just seeing that uh, you don't have to just be, like, 
an indie rock label or a psych folk label or something. You can just kind of establish an aesthetic. And even if that isn't super well-defined by anyone other than you, I think if you feel confident in, that you have one and you kind of stick to it, then people will follow you into some, into some dark tunnels that they may not otherwise just <laughs> because uh, they've liked stuff you've done in the past. And it is hard at times. You know, I was joking with a friend the other day because – he just recorded a record this band Archaea. They're a great rock and roll band from Louisville, and uh, we don't have a lot of bands around here that kind of get bigger so often. Um, you know, having lived in Chicago or something, it's just you don't always hear about bands coming out of Kentucky. But he recorded this record, and it's going to come out on Goner, and I was just like, "Well, oh, that's cool." Like, I listened to it, and it's like, "Man, it's insane that Goner has basically been putting out records that sound exactly like this for thirty years, and they're still like a successful label." And that's like, I look up to that, but it's just not something that I've ever really, I don't know, been able to do or found interest in doing. Like, I just, maybe I'm just too ADD and I want to do a little bit of everything. But I was joking with him. I was like, man, maybe if I didn't go from putting out, like, private press biker records to footwork records in the course of six months, I might be able to, like, lock, lock down a few more uh, dedicated fans. But I don't know. It makes it fun for me to keep people on their toes. And, right. Uh, you got a lot. At the end of the day... It, What's that? I was going to say, yeah, you just got to lock yourself into now you're strictly a biker rock reissue label. That's it. Moving yeah, forward. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's like I always kind of push back on the reissue thing because so many labels are doing it. And once I finally did one, I was like, man, that was so fun. Like, not maybe it's like an easier thing to cash in on because it's like people already have this, the backstory and it's already sort of fetishized. But for me, just like doing like the research and the homework and the steps to like kind of get it back out into the world is a really fun challenge uh, for that specific release. I'm talking about the war and winners thing. Yeah. Um, right. And kind of the build arena thing, uh, a little bit too, even though that wasn't exactly a reissue, like it kind of was in some ways. Um, right. right Sorry, right. I'm getting off course, but no, no, no. Uh, and I'll, those are both questions I have for you. Maybe prior to getting to that build arena one, I, I did want to ask you just from a really generalized operational sense as a, as a label owner is that, you know, in the time that you've been running the label, you know, you've seen things like, you know, just downloading just new streaming yeah. platforms to even kind of multi-purpose things like Bandcamp that have developed over the decade plus that you've been running the label. So what are some of the, th the new challenges that you face? I mean, this is probably fairly obvious to anybody who is an independent label owner or follows the right. stuff, but it's worth noting here. I mean, uh, I guess, again, the challenges that you faced in terms of like distribution and sure. perhaps what are some of the things that you consider as improvements, if any, sure. uh, to when you first started the label? I mean, honestly, like the first the first improvement that really comes to my mind, and and I don't really have any sort of reason to to push this other than the fact that it really helped me out was the Bandcamp thing. Like I I was you know not one of the first labels to get a Bandcamp. I kind of held off for a while. I wasn't really sure. You know, I don't I don't stream a lot of music myself. So to me, the whole thing was kind of foreign. Like I never had Spotify or any of this stuff. So I was like. Oh, Bandcamp, you know, maybe it's better for bands. I, I don't know. And then it finally someone convinced me to just get one. And it really, like, I don't know what, it, I mean, maybe you know more about this because I know you put out records too. Like, if there's some sort of algorithm within Bandcamp that kind of helps push it to people that have already bought similar things or yeah, yep. something happened where it really was starting to kind of, like, like help sales in a way that, you know, it, like, before I just had the sophomorelounge.com and people really had to kind of know about either the label or the band they were looking forward to come to that website and put in an order. And now I feel like it's like delivering it to its audience. A little yeah. Bit more, yeah. Like autopilot or something. And I, that's really been a game changer for keeping it, uh, 
keeping it alive. Yeah. Keeping- well, it does. I mean, if you've purchased something from a label, uh, any time that they release something new, it'll send out a message saying, hey, because right. because you bought this release, hey, this yeah. label is releasing something new. And when you so buy something, you can follow them, uh, which is okay. which is yeah. key. So, yeah, that's de- that's definitely the case. So people who have purchased something from you in the past are directly getting notification of things. So that's, that is a huge uh, yeah, plus. Yeah, huge. I remember, like, with the State Champion record specifically, it would generate, like, you know, I don't, I mean, these maybe aren't specific examples, but in a, just a, loosely speaking, it'd be like, because, like, Doug Maserock or Mark Masters or somebody liked this, then, like, it suggests it to you because you have similar tastes in common. So I think yeah. there's even, like, more to the algorithm than just, like, following a specific label. But mm-hmm. whatever it is has been extremely helpful. As much as maybe, like, the Spotify and all that stuff has or hasn't like you know i started the label in 2007 which is probably right before all that stuff really started getting going i'm not necessarily sure if it's i don't I just i don't really know i don't really know i certainly don't make any money off that stuff whether or not you know i'm not a label that existed before all of it so much that it's really negatively affected me mm-hmm. um i just don't know i yeah, I don't really have much to say about the, the streaming services other than I don't typically use them unless a band specifically requests Yeah, it. yeah. I don't want to have something on iTunes or whatever. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. Well, maybe I'm not embarrassed, but I've never actually been on Spotify. I, I don't even I haven't know. either. I don't even know what it looks like. I don't I have, either. I got, a, I got a free subscription to Tidal because I, they asked me to write something about David Berman and I wrote it and they gave me like a free six-month uh, subscription, which I think is just never stops after the six months. And every now and then, if there's like a new rap record I want to check out or something, I'll hop on there and do it. But it's just, ne- it's, it was never the way that I learned to listen to music and interact with music. And right. not to sound pretentious again, it's not like I only listen to vinyl, but I just, I just it's not a part of my day to day listening habits. And I, I'm yeah. too old and stubborn for that to change now. Probably. Yeah. Oh, I'm, um, I'm with you there. But then another thing that I noticed to go back to your question that like, I feel like one thing that maybe did become more difficult. It's like, I think around maybe the early part of the, uh, or the, uh, the teens, um, like maybe 2011, 2012, 2013, around that time, I was starting to find like there was a little bit of wind behind the label. And no matter what I put out, I remember there were these websites where like, I pretty much had them in the pocket as far as like being able to get press for stuff. It was around the time of like, you know, it was like impose and tiny mixtapes and, mm-hmm. uh, decoder and ad hoc and altered zones and all that stuff that's like whatever it was i had these this batch this network of writers and i could give it to and they would have like you know you'd have one record with five track premieres because so many people were just down to kind of like get it out there and it seems like at some point in the last few years that's really really changed and i find it increasingly harder to find a anyone to really cover stuff in terms of editorial content and b like anyone to really do it in a way that seems at all valuable. And that's not a knock on modern day writers or right. anything. It just seems fewer and fewer. I mean, there's a lot of good sort of like long form stuff when you're reading, you know, Wire Magazine or, uh, you know, they did like the Bull Tongue thing for a while and there's like Still Single and Yellow, Green, Red and some of these things uh, uh, that I keep up with. But a lot of it is just like, it seems like they're just trying to sell Red Bulls or Converse shoes or something and they're just <laughs> reposting the same. Yeah. Well, the one release that you sent them. And it's like, well, I, I fucking wrote that. Like, why did you have to right. like, tell them? Like, there's no, yeah. no thought that really goes into we, it. We I just, think that's affected things a little bit. 
Yeah, we just had, I had that discussion recently with an artist that I, I'm working with saying, well, you want to make sure that you have a good one sheet that it's well written because that's what's going to be circulated totally. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. You control your own review destiny, I guess. That's the yeah. the, the message. Well, yeah, you really do. Let, let's talk briefly about that uh, Bill Doreen release. You know, that came out at the tail end of last year and it, it was your 100th release as a label. It was, and, yeah. And it was, you know, really, I, I would say, arguably one of your most ambitious releases that you've put out in terms of, you know, a double sure. LP uh, that spans, you know, a pretty vast catalog. And it, it, co- yeah. it coincided with this so- as a soundtrack, basically, to his documentary, A Memory of Others. So uh, how, how did that release come together? And, you know, what was that process like? Did you work pretty closely with Bill to... Uh, in terms of like track selection and all that for that specific release i didn't so much um like so that i booked bill just as you know i i guess for people that don't know i run a festival or uh in the past last 10 years or so called cropped out and every year we just uh invite people to come play in louisville kentucky kind of from all walks of the underground world and bill was someone whose music i always admired and his writing and i was admired and i kind of hunted him down and pitched the idea to him and it sort of was on the cusp of not working for a while and we were able to, to get it to work where he would come to the States and I hooked him up with my friend Chris Davis who lives in Nashville uh, to play drums and to kind of drive him around to some shows while he was here and he enlisted the help of a bass player. Uh, so we put a little band together for that and he, I think he had kind of maybe just mentioned to me in passing that he was working on this soundtrack and this and that and uh I maybe just to sort of mention, you know, if you can't find a label to do it, and, uh, you know, I have one. I don't know if he even knew what Soft Melange was, but I just briefly said, like, I'd be interested in working with you on something down the road. And I guess maybe he had chopped it around to some people he'd worked with before, and no one was really in a position to do it. So when he came to me with it, uh, I was really excited because, you know, that's he's an artist that I would be very excited to work with. But it was mainly done, like all the track order and even the mastering and stuff at that point, I think oh, was in okay. the works. I think he'd worked pretty closely with the filmmaker on getting the, uh, getting all that stuff cold from the different eras of his catalog. And so it wasn't as hands-on for me, you know, it was, it became hands-on when I had to do like the rest of the work, you know, even just like the layout alone for a double, like I'd never done a double record before. So sitting there and kind of like pulling stills from the film to kind of mm-hmm. like send to, design friends to blow up to fit this and that and getting negatives from this guy who took a live show video and blah 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 like that was very hands-on but the actual like, track record was not so much but then like on the contrary like this dj hank record i'm getting ready to put out at the end of april was about a year in the works and he sent me probably close to i don't know 80 to 100 different tracks and <laughs> i just like for months and months and months on tour i would just come up with these different playlist and track orders in my headphones and kind of like be like yes no maybe pile and then we kind of like he'd be like well half of your yes pile is stuff that i don't technically have rights to use because of copyright stuff because i bootlegged it or sampled it and i don't have the bit rate right on it like it was like this whole process and then when we finally narrowed it down to the eight tracks we used it's like this feeling of victory that you know <laughs> maybe right. I, di- I didn't have the from the direct thing because the hard work had already been done but uh <laughs> but i guess i do know how it is on both ends of that right well, why don't we play uh, something from that Bill Doreen release and some other more recent things, and, and then we'll come okay. back and actually talk ab- about a few of the things that you mentioned in that, that first part there. But here's a track from Doreen. It's called Magazine, one of my favorites from him. Oh. 
Well, we closed out that block of music with something from that release that we had already mentioned briefly. It was called Crossbar Hotel by the Warren Winters Band, a reissue that Sophomore Launch put out last year. This rare private press album that originally came out in 1988. And you were, you were talking about how you enjoyed um, the process of that one, kind of the research and all that went into it. But uh, I have to ask, because this is one of those great like record collector backstories to it, like how you yeah. discovered it and later tracked it down. And I know this is widely available. If anybody just goes to Sophomore Lounge, the band camp or your website, it's there. But maybe for our listeners, if you could give us just a like brief Cliff Notes, Spark Notes version of that, of sure. coming across that one. Yeah, I mean, the basic gist of that story was just, you know, the, one of my favorite shops in town was just a couple blocks from my house. I was just there digging through the used records one day, and I found this record with a kind of a cool, like, crappy white colored pencil drawing, a portrait of a guy's face, and like a black backdrop. And there was not really any information about it, you know, which is like the private press dork in me has always piques my interest and in trying to kind of like think, you know, what could this sound like? This is weird. And listen to a few tracks on there on the, uh, sampling station or whatever the shop and sound cool enough to take home and spend a decent amount of time with it like it wasn't the music wasn't like anything too whacked or mind-blowing you know it wasn't like a lot of that stuff that gets reissued like the circuit writer like Kenneth Higney stuff where it's just like mm-hmm. totally demented it was just more one of those things that you throw it on you're like huh it's cool and then like you throw it on again later that day and you're just kind of always, always find yourself listening to it but then this record's like it's really chill it's fun to listen to I wonder what else this guy's done and kind of dug around online for a while. And so that record that I was talking about was called the Connecticut Dust Band. And um, after a couple hours of just like clicking around trying to see what I could find, uh, I realized that this guy, Edward Winterhalter, who was behind that, a.k.a. Warren Winters, had made these, a few of these records under Warren Winters Band. And I was looking them up, trying to find more about them. And they're all pretty like high dollar records. And um, so... I don't know like what like how much time passed here but i spent a little bit more time trying to hunt this guy down and eventually found his uh his office who he does like he's basically like a big well-to-do guy in the motorcycle culture world mm-hmm. uh, about which i know almost nothing but he's produced films and uh and written books and he's just kind of like a go-to guy about uh about like biker culture but mm-hmm. uh, he has a website and you can read more about him on it but anyway through that website I contacted a secretary just being like, Hey, trying to reach Edward. I'm just like a guy who runs a small label. Um, a small, I'm in a small band like tour. Like I just would love to get a copy of this record. I don't want to spend a hundred bucks on it, but I'm really interested in the music. Like I didn't know if maybe you had any extra copies in around that I could just buy off you for like a fair price. Uh, and he got back to me and he's just like, man, I actually do have a couple copies left of the original pressing that I've just been like, you know, they've just been collecting dust in my house. He's like, if you're a musician, how about you send me some of your music and I'll send you what I have of mine left. And I was like, great, that sounds fair. So I sent him like a state champion CD and a tropical trash seven inch and I think a couple other things and emailed me, uh, both of the LPs, um, crossbar hotel and the one that came before that. And, uh, I feel like he sent me a third thing as well, but I can't remember what that would have done. But, uh, yeah, just like OG copies, just, you know, basically had not been touched, like in perfect condition. And I spent even more time with those than I did the, the Connecticut Dust Band stuff. And I just kept going back to that crossbar record and just being like, man, 
one day it would be cool to do something with this because not only is the music right on my alley, but the artwork is so perfect. And I'd already started kind of visualizing, like cutting out the prison bars and the screen printing, <laughs> and my gears were just turning. I was kind of dorking out on it. And I don't think I even really reached out to him for a while after that. I think maybe a year or two had passed, and maybe we'd talked about it a while. Like, honestly, when I wrote the one sheet for this, it was probably way more crisp in my memory, like how the whole thing happened. But uh, yeah. at some point in time, we decided that we would do it. And, you know, he didn't know me from Adam, so he did him something like a contract and stuff, which is very chill. I had a uh, musician friend of mine, Chris Bush, who does Flanger Magazine uh, of Sophomore Lounge fame, but he's also a lawyer, and he looked over the contract for me and was just like, man, everything's fine. Like, this guy's not trying to screw you. He's probably just looking out for himself. So I mm-hmm. think that was the first contract I ever dealt with. But, <laughs> right. uh, he's from a different yeah, era. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, we ended up just doing it. Uh, there's probably more juicy details to it than that, but that's like the gist of the story. Just kind of track them down, clicking yeah. around on the internet and, uh, trying to find my way to them. It's great. What I like about it is I was expecting this, you know, maybe scuzzier rock album, but it's actually totally. a pretty great, like laid back kind of folk yeah, rock kind of album. Pretty. Yeah, yeah. There's like ballads on it without drums and, uh, yeah, it's just a really nice record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, well, in addition to running Sophomore Lounge, you, you were also one of the founders and organizers of the Cropped Up Music Festival, which you had already alluded to earlier. Um, yeah. you, it took the year off last year, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was 10 consecutive years prior to that that you were you know doing the festival. Um, you were able it to... It was not quite. We took 20... Uh, 15 off. You did, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were able but to put, you were close. yeah, right. You were you were able to put together some like really impressive lineups of like national, international touring artists over those years. And you know, from what I could tell, how you operate, it was a pretty you know DIY, all hands on deck kind of uh, festival where there wasn't like loads of sponsorships and all these yeah. big grants and arts funding. So you know, how were you able to? organize and pull off something like that i mean it's funny that you're asking this because i was thinking about this the other day like just having not done it last year and you know not probably doing it this year for a multitude of reasons you know the virus thing now obviously being a big one but before this even came about i was kind of thinking about not doing it but it's you look just even back to 2018 when when we did it last and it was just like man like how the fuck did i pull all that off for so many years like the thought of being able to to wrangle that many people. I think that's the big stress of it. The older I get, it's like, man, it just seems like one day this, this could all go up in flames. And maybe I need to get out while, while I'm ahead. Cause there's just so much like <laughs> juggling of, Oh yeah. I mean, it's not just like the glory of, you know, booking your favorite bands. It's like, you know, you got to find volunteers that you can count on. You've got to find people to help with like stage and the sound. You got to rent porta potties. You got to get insurance. You got to do all this stuff. And like you said, there's no, like we don't have any sort of grants or like arts council funding or like we don't have mm-hmm. Jim Dean coming in giving us $10,000 <laughs> to book fucking Joe McKee or something like every bit of money we have comes from just like working a day job, putting money away, ticket sales or like a local video store or whatever, giving us 250 bucks or like just kind of piecing it together right. as much as we can from people in the community because that's, that's ultimately who's operating the whole thing, who's behind it and who it's for. Uh, I don't mean the community so much like Louisville, Kentucky, which is like the community that you and I are both in of just yeah. talking about music like this, promoting music like this. Right, um, right. And by some miracle, it really 
pretty seamlessly came together every year. And that's not to say I didn't get my ass handed to me financially a lot of those years. You know, some <laughs> years you kind of break even. Other years you just, you uh, kind of just stare at the wall for two weeks after it's over saying, like, what the fuck have I done to my life? But, um, <laughs> so I guess I probably can't cuss on this. I don't, I don't know if oh, uh, we can edit that out later. We're fine. We're fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's a lot of just, it's a lot of just emailing and, getting a beer with somebody and talking about your ideas and what's possible, what's not possible. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that I've learned from doing this since 2010, it's like you really just don't know until you ask that right. something isn't possible because booking Jandek just took me going through the Houston yellow pages and finding his name and leaving him a voicemail and him calling me back two hours later. Like never in a million years would I think it'd be that easy. It's much harder booking someone with a booking agent. Like, yeah, you know, and that's the fun part of it for me is just actually getting to communicate with artists. And, right. And the more of the sort of business side of it, I just, I've never really been equipped for it. And it's what really kind of wears me down over the years of doing it. Um, the stuff where it's just artists talking to artists and trying to make something special happen. It's, it's really what it's about for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, we we're, we're going through, like you're mentioning there, like the fall is very uncertain with things happening right now with this, this virus and stuff. And I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, anybody you talk to is just talking about this because how can't you at this moment? But I was just thinking of, yeah. I, I'd be wrong if I at least didn't acknowledge it in, in the course of our conversation here that, you know, how are you as an artist, as a label owner, just as a, as a person, <laughs> as a human being, yeah. how are you kind of handling things right now? Are there certain things that you're, uh, has your time been freed up or that you're able to establish routines or things that are bringing you any sense of comfort and relief during this time? Well, it's funny, like, I feel like the last few months or last few years or whatever you would want to say, I've spent, like, trying to set my life up to where I can kind of operate at home and just be, like, almost, like, making work undistracted, trying to, like, kind of just dig in and, and find some things within myself. Like, that's kind of where I've been at. But ever since this stuff broke, I just happen to be like in my busy work season and I've been so busy and I'm like seeing all my nine to five friends being like, oh, I'm just home playing video games. I'm like, fuck, like, that's, like <laughs> I don't want to be home playing video games. I want to be home like drawing and recording synthesizers and stuff that I've just been so busy the last few weeks. And it's like, it's weird. I mean, I work at an art museum kind of seasonally and we just had a big installation there and finished hanging that like right when stuff started getting closed. I had a couple of days this week at, get canned for that reason so i was doing that you know all day and then leaving straight going to my restaurant job and working that at night and that just happened to be like you know some, some days i work at the bar there but a lot of days i just deliver and now the restaurant can't have diamonds so it's delivery only so right. now i'm like driving around what used to be eight deliveries on a monday night is now 30 because no one can leave the house and no one wants to dine out so they're just having me drive so it's just been chaos like yeah. i haven't had a, a moment to really stop and reflect too much but i'm, I'm imagining that at some point, if things follow suit, uh, you know, I think San Francisco is maybe already doing this for like, it's just essential businesses only. Like maybe I won't even have a job at all, in which case I'm sure I'll be uh, spending a lot of time at home working on our music stuff. And, you know, I'm fine with that. Like, you know, it's, I mean, who isn't it going to screw over financially for the most part? I think it's it's going to it's gonna hurt, but I think I'll get past it. And, um yeah, I do like you know, we were talking about before we started recording. I just don't know what else there is to really say about this. There's no answers. Right, um, right. I mean, I'll be interested in a year from now to kind of see how it all shakes out. But, right. 
And I, hopefully uh, may, we'll, we'll all be in uh, an entirely different place at that point. I mean, how doesn't, yeah. how doesn't something like that change? I guess if we, if we aren't changed, something's messed up. <laughs> Yeah, a society, and my from a society. And I, yeah, totally. We keep my girlfriend and I were talking about this recently. Just like we keep trying to see the positives in it, and the you know the environmental stuff and the pollution getting better with uh, you know less driving and the industry stuff kind of shutting down, and you know like that's great. But if you know now that China's getting better, they're already back to just you know things are getting polluted again, and I just don't know like. You know, even if there is a lesson to learn from all this stuff, I don't know if we're capable of learning it or not. You know, I'd I like to think that maybe we come out of it stronger and make some changes, but a lot of that will, uh, you know, not to get into politics, but come down to upcoming elections, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Right, um, right. Just, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting time to be, to be alive. It's, yeah. I've never for... had anything like this in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the label, though, like, I, yeah, I don't, I haven't really noticed that it's changed much. I actually would say that, you know, releasing the, the pre-orders for the next couple things that are coming out, I feel like maybe slightly softer sales than, than have been for the last few things I've done. And I don't know if that's the nature of the release or people are just trying to save their money. I know a lot of people are on social media kind of pushing for supporting musicians and yeah, underground right. labels right now in this time of kind of confusion. But uh, I I don't know. I haven't really noticed a difference personally. Right. Um, well, well, let's maybe talk... Oh, sorry. Let's maybe talk about uh, some of the new releases that you have coming out here, and then we'll play some music from from some of those. Um, you have here very soon uh, something from People Skills, which is a reissue of a very very limited tape that he had put out on his uh, Saga House imprint. Yeah. And uh, maybe explain how that one came to be, and then we'll, we'll play something from that and come back and talk a little bit more. Yeah, I actually hadn't heard that tape before. Like you said, it was pretty uh, pretty small batch, but. I'd heard the Soul Breeze record and really liked it. And it was not somebody I, I reached out to. It was just like a guy whose, whose music I enjoyed. And John Olson kind of randomly emailed me. I think we were talking about something else at some point. I can't remember what um, that would have been off the top of my head. But anyway, he just, oh, I think I was trying to get some uh, some tapes off him for that public puberty band he did with him and Dan DiMaggio from Homeblitz. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. And um, anyway, he was just like, like by the way, Jesse is looking for a label for a reissue of this tape. Like he's like a big, you know, John Wilson is a big, uh, John Wilson's a big supporter of people's skills and has kind of just been yelling his name to the rooftops. And he's like, man, I think sophomore lounge is a good fit. You should check this out. Like mm-hmm. you could do, uh, you could do it sort of like, I think the idea originally was that, uh, Wilson had kind of envisioned it being this like, screen printed or hand glued assembled type thing like a lot of stuff I'd done but once I started talking to Jesse about the details it was really important to him that it was a little bit more than that um because a lot of I don't know how many of Jesse's records you've seen or have but a lot of it is all like photographs that his dad uh, who has passed away Mm. he was younger uh it's all stuff from the archives of his dad's photographs and so like it really he really wanted to kind of see it through to have them printed how they were printed at the time. So we ended up doing like a full color CMYK thing. And, uh, it, it kind of took a lot to get it just right. But I think everybody's pretty psyched on how it turned out. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. It's a really nice, uh, the jacket's really nice and it's a nice heavyweight, nice pressing. It sounds great. Yeah. Thanks. So. And it's, it's funny because you know, the, that picture, it's like, it was so specific to Jesse that it looked just like that. And it was hard for me because like it isn't a properly, 
it isn't like a proper photo. So if you send it to the, the place to get proofs and they're like, well, this looks like shit. And you're like, well, it's supposed to look like shit, but it, that's how it's like meant to look. You know, it was like, this, right. like it took a really long time to get it right. So what you see when you're holding it in your hands is actually like, you know, it probably looks kind of just, you know, whatever, but it actually took like weeks of discussion to get all the, like the audio and visual stuff like proper for that. So <laughs> right. uh, it was more of a struggle than maybe it came off to me, yeah. but it all turned out pretty well. Yeah. Well, well, let's play something from that album and a few more of the more recent releases and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about some of your music. So this is a track here from People Skills. It's called Blight and it's from the forthcoming reissue of former January ending through 52 weeks. Thank you. 
Well, you've been making music for yourself for, you know, over a decade as well. Um, could you just discuss how your band's State Champion and Tropical Trash developed concurrently as these are two, you know, quite different groups, but they, they have a similar trajectory and just timeline between them. So how did those two bands kind of take shape over the years? Yeah, it, it probably seems that way a little bit more just because of like the release. Um, I don't know the timeline of the releases for both projects, but State Champion has been going on, I think, a, a lot longer. I started writing those songs in like 2005 when I was in college, living abroad in Scotland. I just like I was living over there alone, um, and I got there. There's some series of miscommunications, and the thought school was going to start a lot earlier than it did, and I. Ended up just kind of floating around there for a couple of months with uh, not much to really do, and I had a guitar, and I just kind of started writing songs for the first time in my life. And once it came out, with that first batch of State Champion stuff. So I came back to the States and did some solo stuff, and then, you know, back to Chicago kind of over the years, pieced a band together that more or less the foundation for what the band went on to do for however long after that. Uh, I think the first record we recorded in 2009, and it came out in 2010. I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Yeah, because the second one came out in 2011. So that was always like my flagship thing. Like, these are my songs, and then we make these songs with the band, and we play them with the band, and we make records with the band. Um, Tropical Trash was. So after I left Chicago, I think I moved home back to Louisville in like 2008, like the very end of 2008, early 2009, probably. And, uh, you know, I, I came, I kind of unplugged myself in this cool job at Drag City and this great underground music scene where there's all this camaraderie amongst all these bands playing small rooms together and, and kind of really cutting their teeth. And then I moved back home to Louisville and I kind of felt like a stranger in my hometown again. So it took a little time, a year or two to, to um, sort of like, I don't know, just recalibrate with being home. I hadn't really lived there or been a part of the music scene in, you know, over five years at that point, having danced around between colleges and stuff. And uh, so uh, that was part of why I was doing, I started doing Cropped Out, is I'd been touring and state champion at the time and meeting all these bands, and you go up to, to New York or down to Atlanta or Miami or whatever, and you meet bands and say, like, oh, man, that was great. Like, oh, you guys were great, too. We'll walk, come through Louisville sometime. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it, it got to be where so many bands were hitting me up to come through Louisville and I was also kind of meeting more bands that were active in Louisville but I was just like why don't we just have like a big thing and everybody that I've met and liked over the last couple of years of doing this can get together and see what Louisville's like and uh, what Louisville has to offer in terms of creativity and vice versa and you know nobody came the first year to crop out but it was that it was kind of just like a gathering of friends and it grew from there but mm -hmm. uh, 
during the course of that time was when I started kind of paying attention to bands like Tropical Trash, that uh, and Sapat, who had been around longer. They had like, you know, I knew they had like a record on Silk Breeze and stuff. But, uh, you know, like I said, I hadn't lived there. So meeting Jim from Tropical Trash, I was like, okay, this guy's like me. He's into some weird shit and we got to be good friends. And I was always just a fan. And I told him, you know, after hearing the CDRs and seeing them live a few times, they were a pretty different band back then. Like, I don't know how, how much you've dug into the, the back catalog stuff, but it was pretty like hard edged, like free improv, like mm-hmm. not really song based at all. Um, not really free jazz, but just kind of like, I don't know. I, I, it was kind of difficult music, just like avant rock, like mm-hmm. nothing, n- nothing like the pummeling drums and stuff that kind of came later. But, uh, I saw them go through like a couple members and we did a couple seven inches and I was just like, man, like, you know, you guys are a great band. I kind of helped them get some shows out of town and eventually their bass player quit and they're like, why don't you play bass in the band? And I was like, I don't really know how to play bass. And I'm like, that yeah, doesn't matter. It'll be fine. <laughs> so I joined the band and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll see if I can, can pull, pull my weight here and ended up, uh, being the version of the band that made the first record. That was kind of my goal. as just as a fan when I first joined Tropical Trash. It's like, all right, we got to make a full length. How can we do that? So we were a trio at the time. It was me, Jim, who's like, you know, kind of, I would say it's his band, even though we were very strong, creative, collaborative partners, and we write a lot of stuff together. Like, it's been him since day one. And uh, a, a drummer named Jeff Kamara, the three of us, made mm-hmm. the UFO rot record that Lode put out. Uh, that probably was like around the same time the Fantasy record came out from Stage Champion. We have a habit of releasing records at the same time as how I can always remember. I think that was like 23. <laughs> 15 or so and then uh yeah i've just been with them ever since it's we've gone through plenty more lineup changes since that but it's mainly just been me and jim ever since then um we've got a pretty steady group of people involved now uh a drummer named sal casado who's also been the drummer of state champion and a guy named dan davis who's from louisville originally but he moved to west virginia he runs a print shop there so that's kind of been the core band for the last little while that's who made the last lp that came out yeah last year yeah. Well, as these bands developed, you know, I, I think people started to take note of your songwriting abilities. And I, I should maybe say as, as state champion developed, especially. Um, but yeah. people started to make note of, you, of your songwriting and especially your work as a lyricist. And I think when I say this, I'm sure most people who are familiar are familiar with, you know, the late, great uh, Dave Berman making that comment that the best lyricist who's not a rapper going, which, goodness, I mean, that's huge, you know. Yeah, that was a gift. For him to say that was really a a gift. He didn't need to say that. Right, because one of the... how much I would appreciate that. Right, because, you know, hands down, one of the best lyricists himself having to to say that. So, But I guess in in terms of your musical pursuits over the years, has songwriting or just like the the craft of songwriting always been something that has held particular interest for you? I mean, you were mentioning when you were off initially just kind of on your own at college, like that's where, was that the seeds of it right there is just learning how to play and write songs? Yeah, because I was always the guy in bands in high school and stuff that didn't really know, like I never knew how to play guitar or anything, but I I was interested in, in reading and writing and poetry and, and that kind of became like a standing front and type guy for some bands that I don't care to think about (laughs) in my (laughs) life but you know just like I was just into writing and I was into like kind of taking my interest in and you know whatever I was learning about in school like Wallace Stevens or you know like some of these poets and being like okay I can 
being a rock band, but still do this poetry thing, which is then, you know, like grasping on the Berman and guys like that later. It's like, Oh, these, this is like a master of being able to do this. And I really latched onto that. And, you know, and then you find out about all like the old guys who had been doing it for years, like obviously Dylan and Townsend Chan and Neil Young and all that stuff. And I, you know, I don't know where I ever saw myself in that, but it always was something that, I mean, I can't even say it came naturally. I mean, it actually is quite challenging for me to write this state champion song so much so that like, I kind of, as I sort of mentioned to you before this interview, I'm not really sure what the future of that project is. It's been really nice, you know, after a year like last year where we were on the roads just so much and that Sin Flowers record just took a lot out of me and to just kind of step back away from writing songs like that at least for a while has been really nice. Like, uh, it's, you know, so, I mean, we've been a band since, like, like I said, since 2005 and we only have like four records. Like that's how long it takes me to write this song. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's simple for me to do. So I've been honestly spending a lot of time lately doing quite the opposite of that, which is just like learning how to use drum machines and synthesizers and, mm-hmm. and four tracks and kind of just taking a break from, uh, from really draining my, uh, my poetic brain or whatever yeah, you want to yeah. call it. it well, there's um, something. Yeah, songwriting, of course, is, is always been on the forefront for me. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said about that too. I mean, where you can, with, with equipment or things like that, where it's just very intuitive and you can plug in and play. Where songwriting, I mean, that there's, there's that can, you can labor over stuff so much. Sure. So yeah. it's maybe nice to exercise that that creative muscle, uh, with, with a more yeah. kind of playful sense and, and learning things like that. Totally. Yeah, and I'm and I'm not a prolific writer, really. Like I, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy where it's like, you know, if I die tomorrow, like someday they're gonna, you know, pull out of the well like the unreleased state champion songs, and it's like thirty. Like everything that I've written has pretty much ended up on a record because <laughs> that's how like how little I'm really working with. But uh, but yeah, like you said, like it's just been really nice. I've always just been a guy that writes songs, and then I have friends that do studios and stuff, so I just kind of waltz in and do my thing, like. Now I'm like, man, it'd be cool to just take a step back and be like, what are the basics of four-track recordings? Like, I've, I've been kind of in this mode where I get a huge thrill, almost a high out of just reading an instruction manual from start to finish for, like, a new piece of gear I get at, you know, the used gear store. And just, like, when it finally works after reading three or four times, being like, holy shit, that works. Like, okay, I know how to do that now. Like, I've never known how to do that. Uh so it is, yeah, it's just using the different part of the brain. It's been, it's been really rewarding. And as, you know, Tropical Trash has always been a different part of the brain too, whereas, you know, State Champion is so much like me. Like I go out into the, the woods and write these songs or whatever and come back and show them to the band and we do what we can with them, whereas Tropical Trash is very much like me and Jim sitting in an empty warehouse on the west side of town, just like drinking beer and, and writing riffs over and over and over and digging <laughs> a hole in the ground with them. You know, that's a lot more collaborative of a process. Uh, so I, I mean, it's fun for me to be involved with multiple different things. I mean, we do other stuff too. Like we do this equipment pointed onk thing. I'm not like a core member of that, but that's a little bit more in the sort of like free and kind of electronic avant, whatever yeah. you want to call it world. And then we do this thing called electric drywall band, which if, uh, you know, depending on what happens with this Corona stuff, it may get canceled that we were supposed to be playing this great festival called the thing in the spring and June. Um, so we were going to go up there and do like kind of the first out of town electric drywall shows uh, oh, okay. with a little ensemble group. It would be like me and, and Jim Marlowe and Ned Collette, who's going to be in town playing the festival from Germany and uh, just kind of do 
see what happens with that. Yeah. But, uh, and what, yeah, was, what but, was the festival that you said? What, what was it called? It's called The Thing in the Spring. It's it's kind of like, I've always thought of it as sort of like the cropped out of small town New England. It's in this cute little town called Peterborough, New Hampshire. Okay. My buddy Eric Stadney, he's, uh, he's the curator for the whole thing. And he knows how to work magic with the local arts councils. And he's like way more pro about it. He's like, they've got a non-profit board together and he's, He's like so psyched. He's so much better at running a festival than I am. He's like made for it. Like all the things that I hate about it, he's just like foaming <laughs> at the mouth to be able to start. Like as soon as one year's over, he's working on the next year. Whereas I'm just kind of like my head spinning for three months after <laughs> Right, right. Um, well, maybe but, yeah. worth asking since you're mentioning that, um, just to kind of wrap things up here is do you have any other projects and things in the works either for yourself or uh, for Sophomore Lounge beyond? Uh, some of the stuff that we've talked about and played here on the show that you can mention. The drywall stuff was going to be kind of like the one thing I was doing with my year personally, because this has been, I mean, fortunately for me, like the way this year has taken shape with all this shit, like I didn't have any tours that I had to cancel. I don't have a festival I had to cancel because I wasn't planning on doing one, but I was going to go do this one thing, play this thing in the spring, and then we were going to make a record in Rhode Island for like a few days with that band. So that was going to be the next thing for me which is really exciting because we don't have songs we didn't know what it was going to sound like we just like playing together and we kind of vibe off each other so we were going to go make that kind of be like the one creative punch that we we made this year so i don't know if that's going to happen or not but uh beyond that just yeah just working on on uh, exercising some new muscles and like that you know the the people skills record and the dj hand record coming out in next month and then after that i've got kind of like a whole stew of things that are like 60 to 75 percent sure that they're going to happen but like i don't even really want to talk about them because i'm mm-hmm. not positive and it's it's a lot of just hunting people down in the midst of all the chaos that's happening and it's, it's just weird times and it's kind of a song but i think definitely some more stuff for the label coming out sooner than later i just said you know it's just me so i don't really have to keep that that hard of a schedule i don't have to pay rent at some office building to keep the label afloat it's just kind of like whenever stuff comes to me i make it work and right right i cross that bridge when we get there yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ryan, for for taking the time to chat in in such a strange strange time of our, of yeah, our lives. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're gonna jump into this last set. I'm actually gonna play a couple of things uh, from stuff that you mentioned. I'll start off with something here from State Champion from your album Fantasy Air and a track called "There Is a Highlight Reel." So thanks again, and uh, we'll get into this from State Champion. Tug for every kingdom running 
was taping off my windows at the horizon line like there was no tomorrow. And I was boarding my black there. Hey! 
not to see what we trample.
Gar.
And that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank Ryan once again for taking the time to chat with me. If you'd like to check the complete playlist for the show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase a copy if you'd like. Or you can also head directly to sophomorelounge.bandcamp.com to find out more information about each of the releases. If you have any other questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. I'm hoping to be back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. However, I will not be able to access the studios for a while due to the coronavirus outbreak. So I'm working to get things set up at home so I can continue to record new shows. I'll keep you posted through our website and other social media outlets. But for now, thanks so much for listening.